and welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my stalwart co-host, Daniel Larison, who I am proud to say has been a colleague of mine for at least 10 years. If you are not already aware, Dan has his own Substack newsletter called Unomia, for which he writes daily and is a weekly contributor to Responsible Statecraft, so please check him out. This week, we will be getting an update on the Ukraine war battlefield from the Quincy Institute's Anatol Levin, who was traveling in Ukraine just weeks ago. But first, let's talk about the flurry of diplomatic entreaties that the Biden administration has been making with East Asian allies in a broader attempt to cement their help in containing, if not confronting, China. Last week, Biden met with South Korean President Yoon. Yoon was smarting from leaked discord documents revealing that not only was the U.S. spying on his top government officials, but that the Biden administration was pressuring Yoon and top officials to send ammo directly to Ukraine. South Koreans wanted him to show some backbone since sending the ammo would violate South Korean policy on transferring weapons directly into a war zone, but he did not. He found a way to end run the policy and do U.S. bidding anyway. After Biden offered to extend nuclear deterrence to Seoul, Yoon signed a joint statement that suggested a harder stance on China in the Taiwan Strait, which was not expected to go well with his people either. Meanwhile, Filipino President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. came to Washington this week, cementing the military ties with the U.S., which is desperate to solidify its outposts on the South China Sea. Dan, you've written about this for Responsible Statecraft. Marcos Jr. seems supremely happy to repair the relationship with the United States and get under its security umbrella but he is also holding the line when it comes to being obligated to fight China over Taiwan. Can you explain these dynamics? Uh, sure. Thanks, Kelly. Uh, yeah, so the it's an interesting part of the story that seems to have gotten completely left out of most of the coverage of Marcos's visit. There's a lot of talk of the expanded basing deal that uh, was negotiated earlier this year that allows the U.S. forces to have access to foreign additional bases beyond the five that were already allowed under uh, what's called the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, which was originally uh, set up under the Obama administration in 2014. Um, And so this will include some bases in the north part of the country, closer to Taiwan. And so this has gotten many people excited that this means that U.S. forces will have access to those bases in the event of a conflict over Taiwan. But just last month, uh, the the foreign minister, uh, under questioning in their legislature, uh, specifically ruled out uh, storing weapons, U.S. storing weapons at those bases, and also saying that they would not be allowed to refuel, reload, or repair any ships or planes at these facilities. And so th- that's a, a major sign from them that they're, they're not interested in getting drawn into war over Taiwan. What what they do emphasize, what Marcos emphasizes, and what his foreign minister emphasized, is that the EDCA is intended for the defense of the Philippines. And so they, they're they very happy to have greater U.S. support for that part of it uh, and, and for their territorial claims in the South China Sea, but they're not at all interested in getting pulled into something larger or something outside of that. And so I think a lot of people in the coverage and in the way that people are talking about the basing deal are conflating the two things, and they're treating the, the purely defensive nature of this agreement uh, with 
I guess, more ambitious goals for the alliance, uh, more ambitious than the ones that the Philippine government actually has. And so we we need to understand that there are limits to what the Philippine government is prepared to do, uh, and and the U.S. shouldn't be expecting them to to come to our aid in the event of such a conflict. Uh, and so it's it, and it's kind of funny because the Philippines are the closest of our treaty allies to Taiwan geographically, and so you would think if anybody has or thinks that they have a stake in Taiwan not being coerced by China, it would be the Philippines. But but that's simply not the case. Well, let me ask a quick question. So we might not expect them to come to our aid in a fight against China, but with the very um, presence of having our ships and our weapons staged there at these new outposts be enough? Uh, well, the you could you could have U.S. forces there, but they they're not supposed to be participating in any action with connection to Taiwan. So, the 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 pitfall for the Philippines is that by giving the U.S. this access, they they have actually antagonized the Chinese, who fear right. that that the U.S. would be in a position to do something from those bases. Uh, but but they haven't actually committed to that, and so they I, you know I think they're they're trying to maintain this balancing act uh, of shoring up the alliance without hacking off the Chinese too much. And I, you know, I don't know how well they're going to be able to do that uh, if, uh, as the Chinese ambassador to the Philippines uh, was very irate about the basing deal and, and said some very uh, provocative things that ended up getting him into a lot of trouble there uh, because he sort of implicitly threatened uh, Filipino workers in Taiwan uh, in connection with all of this, uh, which, of course, went over very badly. Um, but then the Philippine government was very quick to, to reassure the Chinese government that they want an independent foreign, they want to have an independent foreign policy that they consider Taiwan an internal issue for China and it's, and they're not trying to interfere. So they're, it seems like when they talk to the Chinese government, they'll, they'll take one line. And when they talk to us, they take a bit of a different line and, and they, they'll emphasize, uh, either independence or, alliance solidarity, depending on who they're talking to. Yeah, I mean, it, it, speaking of a balancing act, I think the same thing is going uh, for South Korea. And President Yoon, who's known as a conservative, from what I understand, his numbers, his approval ratings aren't very good in South Korea. So his trip to the to Washington was sort of framed in this idea that he was having issues um keeping his own people on board with his foreign policy moves while having to deal with President Biden, who has all of these asks of South Korea relating to China. And I mentioned uh, the the Discord leaks that showed that the United States have been spying on South Korea, that putting them under a certain amount of pressure to give ammunition to Ukraine Yoon responded by saying that he didn't think that the leaks were true, that it was fake news. But nonetheless, he found a way to rent uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, shells to the United States as an end run around their policy. Uh, I understand that those deliveries have been made, um, but we'd have to go to South Korean newspapers to sort of see where that's all at now. But this resulted in a further plunge of his popularity numbers in South Korea. He makes the trip to Washington 
in which uh, one of his own asked were, how do we deal with this North Korean threat? You have Kim Jong-un, who has been testing missiles all year, more missile tests this year than I think the two years previous combined. And to the point where South Koreans are starting to talk about developing their own nuclear weapons program to confront this, to counter uh, Kim Jong-un's saber rattling in this regard. And what Biden does is extend this nuclear deterrence plan in which he invites South Korea to sit in on their discussions, any discussions uh, that take place involving a uh, the U.S. response to North Korea, nuclear response to North Korea, somehow South Korea would be brought in on, onto the table, and supposedly this would be in exchange for a promise that South Korea would not develop its own nuclear weapons. And somehow this was a win, win for both. I, I'm not sure that the folks back home think so, um, but it seemed a little paltry to me. Um, in addition... You know, Biden is really expecting South Korea to to enjoin the United States in its containment policy on China. And as a result of whatever talks they had behind the scenes, Yoon signs on to this this joint declaration, basically saying that uh, South Korea opposes any change in the security status quo in in the Indo-Pacific. He doesn't mention China and he doesn't mention the um the Taiwan Strait, but from you know what experts are saying that it is a, a little bit more um assertive than previous statements where they just said we want peace. <laughs> so there is this indication that he's just sort of slipping into Biden's sway in this area and um talk about a, a, a balancing act because this obviously rattles China on a number of fronts. It doesn't make Yoon the most popular guy back home either. Right. Well, and, and there is this disconnect between what people in South Korea are thinking about Yoon and, and how he's being perceived in, in Washington. I think in, in Washington, he's seen as as fairly useful or at least possibly more reliable uh, for the U.S., um, although that, that can sometimes be misleading. Uh, that could be a misperception, I think, because while Yoon talked very tough about China during his campaign for president, uh, since becoming president, uh, he really dialed back a lot of that and has not really been quite as hawkish as many of us, including me, uh, thought he would be. And so it's, uh, I, th- I think here he's, he's maybe paying lip service uh, a little bit again to what people in Washington want to hear, but they're not actually going to deliver very much uh, when it comes to confronting China because it's not really in the, the best interests of South no. Korea to do that. Uh, and, and indeed, when South Korea has stuck its neck out for us, uh, when when they accepted that THAAD missile site, missile defense site, uh, it, it ended up costing them greatly because the Chinese punished them uh, with a, a very nasty economic boycott campaign. Uh, and, and the U.S. just sort of stood by and didn't do anything for them. And so they they know that antagonizing China is going to cost them, and they don't really see what they're getting for their trouble. Um one of the other things where there's a disconnect is uh, where where Yoon is perceived in Washington as being very good because he's more pro-Japanese than the previous government, uh, being more uh, accommodating to Japan, I guess, would be another way of putting it. Uh, the, the 
uh, agreement that he struck with Japan over compensation for uh, former sex slaves of the Japanese empire uh, went over like a lead balloon in South Korea because the Japanese weren't required to acknowledge any responsibility and they weren't required to pay anything. (laughs) All of the payments are coming from South Korean companies. It's the most lopsided deal in the history of the world. Uh, and and so he he ends up making nice with Japan at the expense of his own people, uh, and and Biden is out there praising him for uh, repairing ties with Japan, uh, basically oblivious to the political backlash that has been invited by this. Uh, and and I think we're and we're seeing I think we're seeing something similar in terms of the the nuclear issue too, because if you look at polling in South Korea. South Korean nuclear weapons are very popular, at least they are right now. I think that's probably because people have not really factored in the costs that would come with developing them. Uh, and and I, would, I could also say I think a South Korean nuclear arsenal is unnecessary and unwise uh, for, for many reasons, and then they really don't want to go down that road. But, but right now it's a very popular position, and, and Yoon has got himself on the wrong side of, that, uh, of public opinion on that. Uh, while while earning plaudits in Washington, so I don't know how long that he he can keep that up, uh, antagonizing his own people to keep Washington happy. Um, one one thing that's interesting about the, this Washington Declaration, uh, and uh, Adam Mountain Toby Dalton wrote a really good piece in Foreign Policy the other day, uh, talking about some of the the downsides of this is that by emphasizing uh, the the nuclear or the, the role of nuclear weapons in the alliance, it actually plays into the hands of people in South Korea that want their own nuclear weapons because it, it puts nuclear weapons at the center of the alliance uh, and, and emphasizes how important they are. And so to, to the extent that there will always be doubts about the U.S. willingness to risk retaliation against U.S. territory on behalf of South Korea, uh, over the longer term, uh, you're actually helping uh, the advocates of nuclear weapons uh, build their case. And so in that way, the, the Washington Declaration, while it sort of prevents South Korea from going down that road right now, or it discourages them from going down that road right now, uh, it, it probably only buys you a little bit of time. And, and we'll be back talking about this again in a few years. Yeah. And I mean, this speaks to the, the bigger issue of the United States bullying its partners and allies in the region to become a part of this anti-China hedge or containment or or whatever you want to call it. And we see that each of these countries, even in the West, the Western countries, have these complicated relationships with China that they don't want to um, basically cut off unilaterally because because the United States wants this security architecture in place and in in the in the case of South Korea one of the things that the Biden administration has been pressuring Yoon about is the microchips and it's you know the United States has gotten all sorts of um pledges from western and global south countries that do trading in technology uh to stop um giving uh technology to China for advanced chip making well, South Korea and China, they're huge traders. Um, China is South Korea's biggest trade partner, and that's all in chips and technology. 
And we're telling, um, you know, specifically South Korea not to uh, fill the gaps that have um, that could result when China is supposedly investigating an American chip company, uh, Micron over there, and may ban it, and which is going to, you know, leave a like a vacuum. And we're telling Yoon, well, don't think that you're going to like fill that by giving um, China. Uh, this chip technology so they can make, so they can fill the gap themselves. And so, and South Koreans are like, uh, this is our bread and butter. We're facing like a huge economic decline right now. And you're telling us to cut off our limbs here um, because of this greater competition with China. And so that's another reason why Yoon has been um, under so much pressure at home because they wanted to see him stand up to to Biden and say, listen, we're not going to, we're not, we're not going to cut off our trade with China at this critical time in our economy. And we don't know what conversations happen behind the scenes, but it didn't seem like the chip issue uh, either didn't come up or it wasn't, it wasn't resolved at the time. And I, and I think this is happening all over um, East Asia right now in terms of us telling our partners and allies what to do um, on the economic front when it's, it's, it, it, will, it will hurt them and they know it. I'd like to welcome Anatol Levin to Crashing the War Party today. Anatol is a colleague and director of the Eurasia program at the Quincy Institute. Previously, he taught at Georgetown University in Qatar and the War Studies Department at King's College in London and served as a war correspondent in Afghanistan, Chechnya, and the Southern Caucasus. He is the author of several books, including Ukraine and Russia, A Fraternal Rivalry, and his latest, Climate Change in the Nation State. Welcome to the show, Anatol. Hello. Hi. Um, so great to have you on the show again. Um, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about this uh, breaking news today. Uh, we're recording on, on Wednesday this week. Um, there is news that the, the Russians are accusing Ukraine of trying to assassinate Putin uh, by sending drones uh, that were... Uh, intercepted or, or taken down over the Kremlin last night. So that would be like early uh, Wednesday morning, I believe. You know, could you tell us a little bit about whether or not these report you feel these reports are credible? And if so, uh, what do they mean in terms of like, what would it mean if, if Ukraine was actually able to penetrate uh, missile radar systems and get drones that close close to the Kremlin? Well, I mean, to be honest, it's much too soon to say for sure. We may never be able to say for sure. Uh, but um, I don't think that uh, if these were Ukrainian drones, that they were fired from Ukraine. They were um, probably smuggled into Russia and then fired locally. Um, the Ukrainians are claiming that it was Russian opposition groups that fired it. But un unless they were involved, they can't know that yet either. Um I would think it possible, um, you know, the, uh, according to the CIA, at least off the record, the Ukrainians did try to um, assassinate this uh, intellectual advisor to Putin, Dugin, and killed his daughter instead. Um, it is, of course, possible that this was staged by the Kremlin itself. 
by way of giving uh, uh, Russia an excuse to target the Ukrainian government, which it's important to note they haven't done yet. Um, in contrast, for example, to some U.S. campaigns, which obviously have targeted foreign leaders directly, um, Russia has not yet gone directly after the Ukrainian government. If it's now decided that it wants to, uh, whether because it staged this attack itself or whether because the Ukrainians did it, um, that would mark a, a, a very, very dangerous escalation in the conflict. So whoever was responsible, uh, this greatly adds, I think, to the risks of the of the Ukraine war. Absolutely. Now, you were recently in Ukraine and you traveled to several places in in and outside of the war zone, including Kiev and Zaporizhia and Dnepro. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on this uh, supposed coming Ukrainian counteroffensive and if you and 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 what you saw in Ukraine yourself did it give you any special insights into whether you think that counteroffensive would be successful are people were people talking about it in positive ways have you seen anything since coming home that might uh lend itself to some insights on on what that counteroffensive might look like and um what it might mean for the the, the greater uh, war effort there. I mean, qu- quite honestly, you know, I, I wasn't allowed anywhere near the front line in Ukraine. You need um, special permission. Uh, I talked to quite a number of military veterans and wounded soldiers. Uh, all I can say is that their morale um, seemed to be extremely high still. Uh, one thing that did really come out of my conversations was the, the number of mines being used by both sides, uh, at least in the Donbass. But from what we gather, the Russians have also planted very large numbers of, of mines to uh, protect their, their lines in southern Ukraine. And of course, mines uh, have an effect in freezing the battlefield. Uh, and uh, by the way, I mean, uh, Several of the soldiers, I, the wounded soldiers I talked to, had lost legs to mines. So um, beyond that, uh, I have to say, I mean, I only know what um, we have all gathered from the Pentagon uh, leaks, uh, which is that um, the US uh, assesses Ukraine's chances in the counteroffensive as relatively low. Um, and it seems that. Uh, many U.S. analysts do not think that they can break through. But that in itself um, does not prove anything uh, because, after all, um, you know, people have been uh, completely wrong about Ukraine's chances previously, and the Ukrainians have repeatedly surprised us. So I'm not making any um, firm predictions for what's going to happen. I, I mean, I- including... Um, even where the offensive will take place, uh, because it could be, of course, that having repeatedly signaled in public that they're going to attack to the south, they will in fact attack to the east instead, um, because obviously it doesn't make a great deal of military sense to tell um, the other side you know, what you're going to be doing. Um, but then again, if, as so many people have said, this war has become... Um, you know, much more like the First World War, uh, 
Uh, well, that was, of course, a key problem with the First World War uh, because you had to accumulate um, you know, huge numbers of troops and munitions at one point in order to break through the lines on the other side. The enemy knew exactly where you were coming. Um, so we'll have to see. What do you make of the uh, National Security Council uh, spokesperson, uh, John Kirby, coming out this week and saying that U.S. intelligence indicates that Russia has lost 20,000 soldiers since December. Um, They would not offer any accompanying Ukrainian casualties saying that, you know, Ukraine is the victim here. That was the initial response uh, when asked by reporters, I guess. So we're not giving we're not giving those figures out. What do you think of the timing of of this reveal and and what does it mean? Do you believe it? Um, Do we have any sense of these numbers are accurate? Or does this indicate that in your mind that maybe the Ukrainian figures might be even higher and we, we just can't get confirmation from the government on what they are? Well, I think that's the the, the key point. Uh, I honestly have no idea um, whether uh, these figures, as far as Russia are concerned, uh, are uh, accurate. I mean, we do know uh, that casualties on both sides have been extremely heavy. Um, there was a BBC story recently about how one regiment, one Russian regiment, um, has you, you know effectively been wiped out in the course of. Uh, of the past year. Um, And I visited uh, military graveyards in in Ukraine. Well, it was interesting. They were, um, I mean, I I can't myself, of course, give give any kind of accurate figure. All I can say is that Ukraine has lost very heavily. Um, The other interesting thing was that the biggest one, um, after we'd been in near Dnipro, after we'd been there for a few minutes, um, Ukrainian guards appeared and ordered us away. So clearly there is great sensitivity in Ukraine about uh, revealing the level of casualties. Uh, given um, the nature of the fighting in, in, in Bakhmut, I would assume uh, that if Russian casualties have indeed been very high, uh, then Ukraine will also have lost heavily um, because this has turned largely into a war of artillery. And um, Russia has uh, considerable superiority, at least in numbers of guns and um, and shells. Uh, although, <coughs> I mean, what I can say uh, from my observation of the Russian air campaign, which I sort of witnessed at more or less at first hand, um, uh, a, a lot of the the Russian fire is extremely inaccurate. Uh, so, um, you know, superiority of of numbers of uh, guns uh, doesn't in itself, um, you know, in, indicate uh, crushing battlefield superiority. And indeed, uh, uh, of course, after by now getting on for six months, um, the Russians have not <laughs> have not actually managed to capture Bakhmut. So um, artillery isn't everything. I, I, hi, Anatol. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, you recently wrote about your visit to Ukraine uh, in foreign policy last month. Uh, and in that article, you talked about how the Ukrainian government has sort of trapped itself with its own wartime messaging about retaking Crimea and, and other lost territories. Uh, what does the U.S. need to do to give the Ukrainian government enough political cover to scale back their war aims? Well, um, uh, if that's I don't think that, 
And, well, no, I think they will have to probably at at, at some stage. Um, uh, I, I don't think that uh, anything can or will be done <coughs> until the, the the results of this Ukrainian offensive are more or less clear. Um, but the interesting thing is that really, whatever way it turns out, I think you will then see uh, real pressure for, for a ceasefire in the US and in Europe. Um, because if the Ukrainians break through to the Sea of Azov, this will more or less conform to what some Biden administrations have been saying off the record, which is, you know, we want to help the Ukrainians uh, to... Uh, put themselves at a, 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 an advantageous position at the negotiating table. Well, now, the Russians will not negotiate on the return of Crimea, uh, but if um, if the US and the Ukrainians were prepared not uh, formally to give up Crimea, uh, but uh, to agree to a ceasefire, leaving Crimea in the eastern Donbass in Russian hands, then at that point uh, you 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 might you might actually be able to get Russia to withdraw to the um to the lines of you know before the invasion last year, which would of course be a a, a, a tremendous success and a, and a colossal defeat for Russia and Putin, but it wouldn't be the total defeat which you know Western hardliners and at present the Ukrainian government are aiming at. Um, if the, the ceasefire fails and leads to a stalemate then um, you will also, I think, have more and more people saying, look, you know, this isn't going to work. Um, we can't go on supporting Ukraine at this level. Uh, better to start trying to talk at least, you know, about a ceasefire. Um, of course, that would leave more territory in Russian hands. Um, there is also a possibility, and I, I can't, you know, I, I don't want to... Um, put any kind of you know, numerical weight on these different possibilities. But, of course, um, if the Ukrainians exhaust themselves in, you know, in this offensive, they use up many of their best troops, they use up all their munitions and fail, well, then we could see a, a successful Russian counterattack. Um, and uh, if Russia does counterattack successfully uh, and starts taking much more Ukrainian territory, then, well, that will create a colossal dilemma for the, the Biden administration because, uh, you know, on the one hand, you'll have people saying, look, we've got to go for a ceasefire before Ukraine loses even more. But, of course, you will also have very strong voices and governments, notably, of course, the Poles, as usual, uh, who will be calling for some form of much more direct intervention, because at that point, you know, increased weapon supplies might not be, uh, you know, able to be provided soon enough to save the Ukrainians from. Not, you know, I, I see no possibility, given the entire record of the Russian army to date, that they can that they're going to be able to capture Kiev or even Odessa. But one can imagine them, you know, taking at least more territory in eastern and southern Ukraine. Uh, and then, so that would be a very dangerous moment. Um, and once again, I mean, the, the, there would be strong voices in America and in Europe calling for a ceasefire. But undoubtedly, I mean, given given all the rhetoric of the Zelensky administration, uh, I think it, it would take 
you know, even if Zelensky himself were to recognize that a ceasefire for one reason or another was desirable, um, I think it would take, um, I mean, frankly, really strong pressure from Washington. Uh, not, not so much perhaps to force Zelensky into a ceasefire as to, uh, as to give him the excuse for a ceasefire um, that he could present to his own hardliners. Because, you know, <laughs> I mean, this has been grossly underreported by the Western media, but there, there are you know, deep divisions within the Ukrainian government. You know, and you've had statements, you know, public statements by hardliners, um, you know, saying that if Zelensky uh, tries to negotiate with Russia, uh, um, he will commit political suicide. Um, I heard strong suggestions while I was in Ukraine that the Ukrainian army would, I mean, unless it had been truly crushingly defeated, uh, would in fact do its utmost to veto um, any uh, ceasefire or peace agreement. Um, so it would be a very dangerous moment for Zelensky. But if you know he would need, I think to be you know not just U.S. support, but he would need to be able to say that look, the America left me with no choice in the matter. Right. And well, unfortunately, what we're seeing from Congress right now is is just the opposite. Uh, instead of providing that cover, you know, they're, they're really egging on those hardliners uh, and and saying that. U.S. policy in, in, a, in a resolution introduced in the House, and I think there's a pair, a third one in the Senate, saying that U.S. policy should be to seek the restoration of all Ukrainian territory to its 1991 borders, and and uh, and on top of that to let them into NATO after the war is over, uh, and so that's that's really uh, go, going in the wrong direction, uh, I, I would think. What uh, one of the points that you made in a recent conversation that you had. Uh, was that, that Ukraine has already won a huge victory, and you alluded to that uh, just a few minutes ago. Uh, and so, so there, there really is a danger, isn't there, uh, of putting the victory that they've already won in jeopardy by overreaching and pursuing these unrealistic goals that members of Congress are, are urging them on to. Uh, yes, well, I, Congress on the subject of foreign and security policy, it, it reminds me of a, a, a phrase of Kipling's about the British press barons, that what they're aiming at is power and power without responsibility, the prerogative right. of the harlot throughout the ages. Um, because, of course, the terrible thing about you know, these member of, members of Congress is that they are attempting, as they have so often done in the past, to force upon a U.S. administration uh, a policy which, if it well, I mean, if it leads to complete disaster, of course, will none of us be here, so it won't matter one way or the other. Um, but if it if it goes very badly wrong, uh, of course, uh, not one senator or Congress person um, will accept any responsibility for this whatsoever. Um, it will all be the fault of uh, of the Biden administration. Uh, so, yeah. Um, they are they are trying to uh, tie the the administration's hands. Um, this is also, of course, deeply irresponsible as far as Ukraine is concerned, because um, you know it, 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 it assumes, which is not actually you know what officials in America or in Europe have been necessarily saying in private, but the assumption is that the U.S. will go on, and, and equally importantly in economic terms, Europe, 
will go on supporting Ukraine to complete victory indefinitely, however long this takes. Well, that, of course, simply cannot be guaranteed. And by ruling out uh, some form of comp- at least provisional compromise peace, uh, they are uh, you know, opening up the possibility that in future uh, Ukraine could suffer worse defeats and much greater losses. So, Anatole, I, I, I did want to ask just to follow up on Daniel's question. I, this week, uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy went to Israel. He gave a big speech in front of the Knesset. Uh, he was only the second speaker in U.S. history to speak before the legislative body, the first being Newt Gingrich in 1988. And he fully, full-throatedly endorsed uh, continuing um Full, he says, full security aid to Ukraine as long as he's speaker. He's asked by a reporter, a Russian reporter, while he's you know out and about walking uh, about his previous statements about no blank checks for Ukraine, and he says, "No, uh, I I fully support Ukraine aid." And um, by the way, you Russians should pull out of of the country. You know, and these are statements that are made in a foreign country for a specific audience, yes. But do you get any sense that paired with these resolutions in the House and the Senate, which, as you mentioned, would tie Biden's hands to a much more assertive policy, do you sense that Congress is actually um, circling the wagons around uh, the, the status quo as opposed to seeing some cracks that we had been by Republicans and, and maybe holding the line and being a little bit more restrained on the issue? Well, it certainly seems so, yes. Uh, but, uh, of course, you know, if, if they can flip once, they can flip again, depending on what happens on the battlefield. Uh, and, and again and again and again and again indefinitely to judge by some of their previous political records, right, uh, on a whole range of subjects. Um, so, you know, we will have to see how things develop on the battlefield. I mean, that is the, you know, it, it, it is the, the, the progress of the actual fighting, which is the most critical issue. And of course, um, if there is no you know, ceasefire uh, by late next year, we will have to see who wins the next US elections right. and on what platform. Um, I mean, uh, that will be a, a very important moment. Uh, but, um, you know, not so much militarily, though it is significant, uh, but certainly economically, the attitude of the Europeans uh, is also going to be critical. And uh, for the moment, they have, on the whole, you know, displayed considerable solidarity. But we we all know about the, the, you know, divisions and fissures uh, in Europe. Um, And... Uh, you know, with regard to Poland, for example, um, uh, G- Germany, you know, partly because of guilt over the Second World War, has, uh, you know, gone along to a considerable extent with Polish policies and Polish wishes. But uh, under the surface in German, Germany, and you know, some Germans I've talked to, there is also growing resentment 
of being you know pulled around by the poles in this way even while the, the poles you know uh, repeatedly the polish government repeatedly insults germany you know makes statements about germany trying to create a new fourth reich in europe uh, demands uh, more than a, a trillion dollars in compensation you know for german damage to poland in in, in the second world war which even annalena baerbock you know, immediately ruled out so um uh we've had a lot of stuff recently you know about um uh the the, the much greater weight of poland uh, in europe as a result of the ukraine war and and as a result of you know successful polish uh, economic growth over the past generation um uh, since so much of the discussion about you know this war has revolved around historical issues uh, i have to point out that the poles have a very uh, strong historical record of repeatedly overplaying their hand um in terms sounds of like the their, democrats in washington to <laughs> <laughs> <Just> some extent <laughs> Um, before I go, I did have I did want to ask you about China and its overtures um, regarding a, a peace, a possible uh, peace plan, or playing a mediator uh, uh, in the war. Uh, it doesn't seem like something that the United States wants to hear much of. But do, will they have any choice? I mean, what kind of role could and should China play in uh, any future negotiation talks? Well, I think it was extremely foolish of the Biden administration to brush off uh, the, the the Chinese overture, um, as also, by the way, uh, the extremely insulting and gratuitous response to Lula da Silva's statement from Brazil, uh, a statement you know on the need to end the war, which, by the way, uh, had tremendous support across large parts of the global South, uh, including in U.S. partners like. India. And it was also totally unnecessary. I mean, all, all the US had to say was, um, you, you know, make some complimentary remark about, you know, Brazil's role on the, the world stage without committing itself to anything and saying, you know, we, we welcome all, you know, suggestions and proposals, ditto with China. I mean, the, the, the Chinese you know, peace proposal was not in any way, you know, concrete or detailed uh, enough. But um, uh, if you think, as, as the, the Biden administration has said that uh, repeatedly that this war will end in negotiations, well, uh, you will need media, neutral mediators. Uh, you will need people who are capable of bringing serious influence to bear in Moscow, since you now you know have enormous pro um, difficulties to overcome, you know, even in talking to the Russians directly. So what on earth is the point of sort of ostentatiously dissing these countries? Um, you know, it's the kind of thing that you would have expected of John Bolton, you know, who was known, I believe, to his colleagues yeah. in, in the United Nations as the anti-diplomat. Um, you know, it, many people have, have so often written that, you know, we should give less money to the um, uh, to the Pentagon and more money to the State Department. I'm not sure that either of them are really worth more money. <laughs> I know a number of people that would agree with you for sure. Um, thanks for joining us, Anatol. I, I hope that you'll come back as things develop over the, the course of the next several weeks or months, I, you know, like you said, we just have to wait and see at this point. 
where uh, the, the next moves on the battlefield will take us, but I, I sure hope you'll, you'll return to share some of your insights with us. Thank you so much. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. <laughs>